Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. Now, this episode is a bit different because as part of Vision Week, which has just taken place, I was the moderator for a panel discussion on creatives and the arts. How can they shape our future? And we had four panelists speaking about this topic. They were Anne Rada, Professor Peter O'Connor, Hannah Tapo, and Felicity Letcher. And I've put the bios and descriptions of each of them within the show notes, so you can check those out. So on this episode, you'll hear them each describing their backgrounds and the way that they've been involved with the arts. And then we dive into a bunch of different questions, in particular, trying to look at this question of how the arts could actually help to shape the future in a post-COVID world. But that's definitely not the only topic that we touch on. And we go into lots of detail about a whole bunch of other things as well. If you enjoy this episode, then check out some of the others in the back catalog, because there's more than 180 of those. And typically, they're interviews with people about their lives and trying to understand their journeys and where they're from. For example, one of the panelists, Anne Rada, was interviewed just two weeks ago, and that's really what led to this panel taking place. If you'd like to find out more about Seeds, there's a website at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this panel discussion. Oh. Aroha mai. <laughs> um, na mana, na reo, na hoewha, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, na rangatira, in na hōhoki, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. No mai haere mai, no mai haere mai ki tēnei kaupapa o te wā, uh, te o na mahi uh, toi. Kia mau ki uh, na mahi toi. Hold steadfast to creativity. That's our kaupapa of today. It's something about holding. Uh, we hold with our hands, we make art with our hands, we make uh, our democracy with our hands, we make ourselves hold steadfast, kia mo, bring close to ourselves to feel the arts as they beat against our chests. Uh, and that's the kaupapa of today. How might we in the future hold steadfast to everything that we know about the importance of the arts, no reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Thank you so much, Peter. That's a wonderful introduction, and it frames really nicely why we are here today. Um, just to introduce myself, I'm Stephen Moe. Um, I'll be facilitating our time together. Um, we have an amazing panel, and they're going to be considering um, some really interesting questions. Um, our theme is creatives in the arts, how can they shape our future? Um, but we want to go beyond that and we're really interested in your thoughts and your comments. So a very useful function of Zoom is the chats. So if you have a question for our panelists, if you would like to make a comment, um, feel free to use the chat function and put those there. Um, the way that we're going to run this is that each of the panelists is going to share a little bit of their thoughts. And, um, you know, we're in a unique time, as we all know. So we're going to hear from each of them and some a little bit about what they're doing and the context that they bring today. Um, and then we're going to be um, having some questions and we're going to be going through those. So we're really fortunate to have Anne Rada, Professor Peter O'Connor, 
Hannah Tapo and Felicity Letcher today. Um, so to start off with, um, I should just say as well, <laughs> the idea for this started like three days ago. So it's very, very fast that we've been able to turn this around. Um, we looked at the Vision Week, uh, which is a wonderful initiative, um, looked at the Vision Week calendar and, and realized there really wasn't much talking about the role of the arts and creatives. And we thought, well, actually, we can do something about this. We could have a session. So a huge appreciation and thanks to the panelists who came in really, really quickly. Um, the other thing is that we are recording this because we realize with the power of technology, other people will be able to watch this. And we've already had messages from people saying, I can't make it, but I really hope I can see the video later. Um, so we're going to record the video. Um, we'll put it out as an audio on Seed's podcast as well. Um, so to kick us off, I'd like to turn to Anne. Um, Anne, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself and then just some opening thoughts on, on things that you've been thinking about? Sure. Well, hi, everyone. Um, there's some folks and faces that I haven't seen for a good long time, so it's nice to see you in this strange two-dimensional place. Um, but then also some people that I've been wondering why I haven't ever met before today. So um, very nice to see all of you here today. Um, and Rada, I immigrated from the United States 25 years ago. My childhood was spent in the desert in Arizona uh, as a music nerd. I played in the orchestra and I swam and went to school and that was my existence. Um, I ended up taking a very liberal arts approach to my education until I hit about 21 and then I went really hard into solo cello performance and did that for my master's degree and then for my first profession. My husband, also from the States, and I immigrated 25 years ago. He's a professional symphony musician. And upon being in New Zealand, I ended up in arts management and have had the great privilege to be at the head of a handful of New Zealand's iconic institutions, the Writers and Readers Festival, the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra, and then I, the one that started the Michael Hill Violin Competition years ago. That's my summary background. Um, in, the, in the last 10 or 15 years or so, I've extended my leadership into education, um, philanthropy and governance, and I've done some lecturing as well. So at the moment, I'm um, like everyone else, trying to figure out what all of this means. And my calling is to give something back to our sector at the time that there's the greatest need. Um, we know that how hard we've been hit. So my response is to create um, a mechanism to try to give back and to support through providing advice, um, helping people avoid the mistakes that I've made along the way. Um, so Stephen asked me to just contemplate or share what I've been thinking about. And I suppose I would go back maybe a half a year ago to a lot of reading I was doing and some speculation and investigations into the fact that the, the whole world was at this manic pace and we know what it's like, the globalization and the technology that was throwing, you know, four frames at a second. Um, the manic, manic speed and the fact that AI was taking our jobs and creating robots and even doing our thinking for us. And it seemed really obvious to me that the arts would be able to enjoy a renaissance, similar to the locavore movement where we learned that it's better to eat locally and quality. I have this really strong sense that, that there was going to be a big 
stop, stop the chaos, stop the freneticism and look for authentic human experiences, the sorts of things that robots cannot do. So I've been very um, emboldened by that and excited by that. And then here comes COVID-19, throwing on the handbrake and giving us all whiplash. So it has um, given our entire workforce a real body slam. It's decimated income. It's challenged our reason for existence. Um, and it's created a good 18 months of, well, of some complete loss income, um, but a future of uncertainty. And I, I understand that um, hugely. In isolation, however, our artists have been creating art. And so we are going to be seeing the sculptures and reading the stories and the poems and hearing the symphonies that our artists have been creating over the last couple of months. It also has shown us the resilience and how creatives and artists true to their DNA have harnessed technology in ways that we never thought before. So as peculiar as it is, we've seen symphony orchestras and entire casts of music theater and, and the Met Opera performing from their living rooms. We've seen theater companies um, present Chekhov in two-dimensional space. And it's really important that we remember and attribute all of the things that tried to keep us sane during lockdown were produced by artists. So that, in my opinion, and I hope you agree, illustrates even higher the value that creatives have to our, not only our situation, but who we are. So this is, this time has taken stock, I believe, of what's important, that the creative arts will be able to enjoy their rightful seat at the head table if we're noisy about it. So in times of crisis, the arts become very central to our lives. They help us understand who better to parlay chaos, lack of resources, lack of sleep or too much sleep into beauty. This is what we do and we do it better than anybody else. And we know that. It also shows us and others how to express the unimaginable. It gives words, it gives solace, and it reminds us what it needs to be human. So as we're coming, moving out of this two-dimensional and back into three and four and five-dimensional space in reality, we have got to make sure that we claim our space in all of this ability because we are the ones that are going to be the frontline workers now. Thank you, Countdown. Thank you, our police force. But now more than ever, the imagination, the resilience, the ingenuity, and all of those skills that creatives have been developing since they were old enough to hold a paintbrush or read a book or write, this is what's needed now. So I hope that's a call to action, Stephen, and we'll... Um, in, engender some good discussion from here. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It, it frames it really nicely. And I completely agree with you. And the, the, the interesting question is this, what next question? What does the new normal mean? What does it involve? And, and whose voices are being listened to and actively speaking as we move forward? 
Um, so what we're going to do is continue to go through the panelists and, and hear their perspectives and a little bit about them. Um, Peter, do you mind sharing a little bit of your perspective? Oh, you're on mute again. I'm sure it was good, though. <laughs> Sorry, I'm working off my phone. The microphone on my laptop's not working. Um, Neil Gaiman, the, the novelist, says that in the English language, there's no uh, word for the moment between breathing in and breathing out, that, that we don't actually have a word for that microsecond. And the world really has been in that extended period between breaths. Um, much of the world, 1.2 billion children, for example, have been in lockdown and excluded from schools for somewhere between seven and 12 weeks. Many of us have lived in a kind of suspended animation, connecting to each other through some invisible wire that does or doesn't bounce off some satellite somewhere in the world. Um, and in that moment, it has given us pause to think about where we might be and whether or not we want to bounce back to what we were. And increasingly I meet people who say, no, we're not bouncing back. And certainly if you think of the, the, the tensions in the United States over the last two weeks, that there's a very solid determination of not bouncing back to the way in which the world was, that there might be a different kind of future. So, if we're not bouncing back, the alternative to me would be that we might leap forward. We might sing our way into the future. We might dance our way into the future. We might paint. We might do a whole range of ways to help us imagine what the future might be. There's also a sense that we won't actually get the chance to do that, that there will be other agendas that will be placed upon us. So one only has to look, for example, at the agenda that you see in the Auckland City Council emergency budget, where the arts don't exist particularly, where they've been slammed and slashed and cut and burnt. And so there's another agenda, which are about actually bouncing back to what we privileged, what, what we saw as valuable. And perhaps there's a metaphor in a vision week where the arts don't exist that despite your good intentions, even in the group that pulled us together, we're relegated to the Friday afternoon slot. In fact, after the rest of the Vision Week process is completed and finished and the summaries have been made, and perhaps part of the problem for us in the arts is that we exist still in a bubble. We, we talk to ourselves. We, you know, we... we, we talk to each other in this echo chamber where we all agree about the importance of the arts, but we never seem to get the chance to talk to anybody about that beyond ourselves. And so there's a danger um, in, in these kinds of things where artists talk to themselves and remind themselves about how important they are to society. But, but, when, but when the real movers and the real shakers, the scientists, the transport people, the, the people who work around tourism, the city council gather, we're not at the table. We're nowhere near the table. 
Um, and so um, that's what's been um, exercising my mind, really, since being invited to be part of the panel. Uh, how do we, who work in the arts, who advocate for the arts, not be the tag-on event on the Friday afternoon? Um, and that's a really important question for us all. How do we talk beyond ourselves? How do we find the language that convinces policy makers that we have something to offer? You know, we have, a, we have a prime minister who speaks beautifully about the power of the arts but doesn't deliver. You know, we have a city council that, that finds other priorities. And if we always see the arts as a luxury, as something on the fringe, that's the way it will be. You know, the, the, the money that came last week for the arts, rescue package for the arts, great. But, but the thinking that we really needed was that the arts were the rescue package for the country. And we didn't get that. So those are the kinds of things which I think uh, are really important um, for us to think about. How do we leap forward with others? Well, that's wonderful. I love the the um, the thoughts that you've provided because I, I agree with you. The danger of any group or subgroup is that you end up talking amongst yourselves. So how do you bridge across the silos? How do you get the conversations happening so that um, you're in a room with a diverse range of people? I'd love to come back to that during our discussion because I'm sure the other panelists have thoughts as well. Um, but we're just going to continue for now with the intros. Um, so, Hannah, I'd love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me well? Cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, hi, guys. My name is Hannah, um, also known as Sima. Um, I grew up in Rotorua, I'm a Bay of Plenty gal, um, but I'm based up here in Auckland now. Um, I work at a music and arts centre called Te Oro, um, and I guess you could say we, we are currently on the front line, and um, we are frontline workers at the moment, um, trying to aid in rebuilding our community um, following um, lockdown. Um, my thoughts. Um, I, I, I had a lot of um, kind of correlation with what Anne said in terms of, um, oh geez, I've gone, I've gone blank. <laughs> it's actually quite nerve wracking. Like a, it's, I'm in my room and I'm in the safest place possible, to, but I'm still nervous. <laughs> um, so yeah, you'll just have to forgive me. Um, but yeah, main things on top of my head is I, I find it a very interesting time. Um, and what I mean by that is that I, I don't, I, well, I can't recall a time in my lifetime where we've been able to really start with a clean slate. Um, and what I mean is that in the time of lockdown, um, a lot of people obviously were forced to kind of sit and reflect um, past, you know, more nine to fives, past, you know, everything that we've been conditioned to, um, to do. Um, and I think that it's a very exciting opportunity for artists and um, yeah, for the arts to, I guess, pave a new way, um, kind of, sh sh kind of work towards a new kind of reality, which had been kind of, I guess, seen as not viable or 
in the past. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much me. I'll just, I'm, I'm not really good at talking, but I'll probably be a bit better once we get warmed up. So. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It, it's <laughs> great to hear that. And can you just tell us a little bit about Te Oro and what, what's actually happening there? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, what are you seeing? Mm. That would be helpful. Yeah. Um, so as you know, we've just gone into level one. So we opened about three weeks ago. We were still in level two. Um, so Te Oro is a music and arts centre that's based in Glen Innes in Auckland. Um, we're owned by the council. Um, and basically we provide free to low cost programming for um, youth, um, or oh, well, arts related programming for youth aged from 12 to 24. Um, we're about, we've just turned five um, and yeah, we've got music facilities, we've got a massive dance studio, a theatre. Um, we've also got like, you know, a big arts room and so, so many resources at hand. So um, right now, our main focus is just providing a safe space for our community. Um, we are looking into what programming is going to look like now because obviously there's still quite a bit of stigma in and around, you know, parents, especially being comfortable with letting their children come into the facility and, you know, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. There's, we're still feeling the effects of that. So, yeah, that's pretty much our main focus at the moment. Oh, that's really good. Thank you. And I think that that will help us because you're right at the coalface there. You're you're actually, you know, seeing the impact that's being being had right now. So I'd love to come back in a minute um, to hear a bit more about that. Um, the final panelist is Felicity. Do you mind telling us a bit about your background and, and what you're observing? Kia ora, everyone. Uh, my name is Felicity Ledger. I have had the great fortune in my life to have spent my entire life in the creative industries and in the arts um, and my work has really been about creating environments for creative people to operate and do their very best work in. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I've always done and I've I started in the theatre. I had a family that really valued the arts and the theatre in particular I always went to the ballet, we went to the theatre, we went to music. It was a big part of who we were. I sang in the National Youth Choir. I did my letters in speech and drama. Um, when I went to Germany as a 17-year-old, it completely blew my mind that culture and art could be such an integral, normal part like breathing. Um, and that, I think, was one of the first formative experiences that I had of just the normalisation of the arts. I always knew that my family was a little bit different, that arts was not something that everyone did. Um, but to be around kids my age, um, 17 at the time, who took part in a, a school programme where they paid five marks, five dollars, um, every Thursday and you would go and see whatever was on. It was could have been opera, ballet, and you just got the seats that were left over and everyone did it. It was just something that everyone did together. It was a community event, actually. Um, and that, for me, really opened my eyes to the role that arts could play on a much broader um, basis, that it was an integral part of the culture and, and, and just part of being in that particular community, obviously, in Europe. When I came back, um, I did a BA and then I decided to uh, 
do a diploma in drama with Murray Edmund at Auckland University. And I very quickly, instead of being um, an actor, which is kind of what I went there to do, I um, ended up producing and setting up databases and things like that. So I think my, my role in organizing people and my ability to connect came through right at that early age. Um, and from then I, I produced a lot of comedy uh, I worked with uh, Sugar and Spice, Tarada. I worked um, with the Silo Theatre right back in the day. We, I was on one of the first boards that hired Shane Bosher. Um, I worked for Anne at the Auckland APO. I had lots of uh, talents that I sort of, you know, um, used. I was really good with numbers, uh, so I used that. Sorry, I've got a cat. That's a little bit annoying. <laughs> um, so I, I gradually created, I suppose, a, a career as a producer. I was really lucky to get in with the Silo Theatre and I got a name as, um, as a producer of quite strange um, uh, devised work, which is a very unusual, well, it's not unusual now, it was in those days, but you basically have to market and sell something that doesn't exist. You also have to get funding for it. I spent a lot of time trying to get funding from Creative New Zealand for young artists as I came up and hitting my head against a brick wall. It was deeply frustrating. Um, and I suppose in that vein, I started to really not think about funding. I started to just think about commercial, making a good commercial success. I did a lot of work with no funding at all. Um, and I really learned about audience and how to attract an audience, how to get one, um, and that was really important. So uh, I moved into screen quite quickly, became a production manager and a producer. I ran a um, documentary company, and I set up with my husband a, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> a props and makeup effects company. And I sort of started to work in screen strategy during the incentive crisis. Um, when my livelihood was being threatened. Um, and again, that was about government funding and government support of um, my sector. Uh, and I learned that if, in order to have a voice, I wasn't going to be told by government officials to stay quiet and just wait and be patient, that I actually had real skin in the game. We had a workshop, we, we, we employed people. And so it was really important to me that that voice and that point of view was put across. So that's what I've been doing in the last few years. I've been very involved in the sector. Last year, I was extremely lucky. I was um, worked with ATED on the attraction of Lord of the Rings and Netflix, and I set up a um, screen development program, which had skills and training, business development, and uh, sustainability, and a large digital network that connected uh, post-production studios. So that's my sort of what I've been doing. And I suppose what I've been doing most recently is I've led the screen um, response to the uh, COVID situation. And I re it really resonates with me what Anne and what Peter and, and, and Hannah have said. And I would say that the biggest thing I've learned during this time is connecting and talking um, siloization is a big thing we deal with in New Zealand, and it does have a lot to do with funding. We are extremely competitive with each other around a very small piece of pie. And really, the argument that, and why I'm so thrilled to be working really closely with Victoria Blood, is that um, what the creative industries and the, the industry transformation for the creative sector is all about is growing the pie. 
and starting to, call, to talk across the sector. How is it that we can all work together? We're a very small nation, five million. We depend on export. And so how can we turn, and we're extremely creative. It's absolutely incredible. I'm working with the Amo Group right now that is about creative companies in New Zealand coming together to say we're open for business. And the creative companies in this country are extraordinary, but they're very small. So I suppose for me, it is about coming on panels like this, sharing my experience, which is very much based in the arts, and how I've been able to use that to create a creative industries career, um, and how really we need to look across the sector to survive. That's what's going to be the future. And that goes for the screen across creative industries and into the arts as well. We're not, any of us are immune. So, yeah, that's enough for me. Great. No, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and I, I like the, the words that you were using there about connecting. It's interesting because I've been talking a lot with charities and um, groups like that. And the words that are, it's very similar words. It's how can we collaborate? How can we work together? Um, we can't just go back to the way things were. Um, now, we have a great um, comment here in the chat from Tim Walker. So I'm just curious, Peter, just turning to you, because you'd originally raised this idea of are we having a voice um, and, and how do we communicate or are we becoming siloed? Um, what Tim says here, do we want art to speak beyond our bubble and as part of that confront wider realities and challenges or do we want the rest of the community to simply support what we value about the arts? Do you have any thoughts on that or that, that theme of bubbles and collaborating? Yeah, I, I think it's really important that we um, work across the sector, but really one of the, the other things that we, we haven't done particularly well is work beyond the sector and to develop those kinds of partnerships and relationships. So, you know, government at the moment is investing in a whole range of different sectors that the arts are central to. So, for example, tourism, regional development, education, cor uh, corrections, youth development, the arts are embedded inside those sectors, but government doesn't see us, doesn't recognise us, doesn't see the enormous contribution that we make, that you can have those, those organisations um, doing, uh, artists um, doing that work. I mean, we, we at the university have a, a group called Te Ora Oaha, the Creative Health Network. There are 500 artists working in health and wellbeing. You know, we have a government that calls itself the wellbeing government, and yet there's no strategic funding or management of funding for artists who are working in places like hospitals with, with, with young people, with thinking the extraordinary kind of work that Red Leap's doing, a whole bunch of different organisations, or, or, or the amazing work in Glen Innes, which is, you know, driven by large amounts of it, driven by philanthropy, by driven by the whim of local councils or, or whatever, but because there's no strategic vision for how the arts might actually play roles at a wider policy level, we end up standing in a queue alongside horse racing and sports for the handout. And I think that's part of the difficulty that we need actually to be building those strategic alliances. How could there have been a vision week, back, you know, not without hammering it, where they talk about tourism and arts and culture is not in there? 
specifically? How can they talk about transport and not the arts? How can they talk about regional development and not the arts? How can they talk about education and not the arts? But it's done all the time. Um, and it's because perhaps we spend too much time talking to ourselves. I think it's really important that we, that we talk beyond ourselves. That's Can I just pick up on that? <laughs> Sorry, I think, that's, yeah. I think it's such a really, a really valid, valid point. And I think that in order to do that, you really do need to get, as Anne said, you need to get really quite loud about it. And you need to make those connections with other industries, which you play a key part in supporting and where you come out of and where people can actually have those tea careers where they have an arts practice, but they also have other things where they augment their earnings through and, you know, their world through. I mean, I like the word practice because it, it, it really describes that working at something. And in order to have a practice, you, you do a lot of different things inside that. In our workshop, for example, we have a lot of different kinds of people who are artists, they're painters, they're musicians. But they come and work for us maybe for 15, 16 weeks at a time. Then they go off and do their art for three months. Now, I'd say they're an artist, but they're also part of the creative industries in the screen sector. And that kind of mindset that they bring with them is extremely important. You can be both. It's a huge luxury in this country to just be an artist. You need to put yourself in a context of other kinds of work and really be finding your audience. And that's both commercial, but also individual. So this is about um, speaking multiple languages, isn't it? Um, being able to bridge across. Um, I'd love to turn to you, Anne, and hear your reflections on this. And also, if I can just um, get you to speak uh, about boards as well, because I know that you've been involved in boards that um, aren't necessarily what we might term creative or art sports, you know, but you've, you've had experience across a, a range. And um, maybe this would be a time to share about a collaboration that you and I have had as well. Um, to luck, David. Yeah. <laughs> Very elegant. <laughs> um, well, just a direct response to Felicity. Um, artists invented the gig economy. Um, you know, we know more about portfolio careers than just about anybody. And so it's very natural that we inhabit and demonstrate to others that this is what it's done. I am of the same view as Peter and others that we're too um, in our own silo and in our own echo chamber. Um, certainly it's easy because we have common values and we can speak the same language. But it does give us the impression that we're this precious little um, needy commodity that draws on outsiders to give us advice for legal or, or accountants or to buy us tickets or to donate or to sponsor us and we need to get rid of this them and us kind of mentality tear down that wall because they need us as much as we need them and so we need to blur the lines and make sure that there's a two-way dialogue and because we're artists we're naturally inclined to co-create. We're really, really good at producing projects together because they're fun and because we have a bit of a buzz together and we might have some cross-marketing or some um, larger pieces like that. But if there's nothing that follows on from that, if it's not strategic, then then what? It's a fun thing, but it doesn't have any legacy. So if we really are going to collaborate across our sectors, 
uh, across our sector and integrate into others, we need to do it at the highest possible strategic level. So that's a natural kind of transition into boards who, as we know, are the, the um, big decision makers. And so I've been, as Stephen said, involved in a few different boards and waving the, the arts flag, as one would expect. The, the opportunity to prick the conscience of governors is really critical right now because every single company has had to exercise more creativity in the last eight weeks than they ever have before in their life. So we're pivot crazy. Our heads are about to spin off our pedestals from pivoting so much. Ballerinas could teach us. No, that's a different thing. Any case. Um, so to say that boards are not being creative is probably unfair to boards. However, they're not necessarily using the best kind of a range of skill set to help with the decision making that will impact all of us. If, if we know that New Zealand has a small economy and we're in competition for that, and I, I don't dispute that there's that there's going to be a scramble for a few shekels that are available, then we have to be smarter about it than we have been. And we have to infiltrate the decision makers. So governors are one, policy at government are one, um, politicians, obviously, that's an obvious one. Um, and then the social grassroots conversation that we're having here and elsewhere. So Stephen's right, we have I think we'll probably hit the pages on Monday, Stephen, um, but we've co-written co a paper together about creativity and governance and to show that the skills that creatives have are exactly those that should be comprising diversity in the boardroom right now. Um, it's about cognitive diversity. It's about a range of experiences and backgrounds, not just gender, not just ethnicity and not just age that we needed to have a broader conversation. And the passion that I have is about augmenting the value of the arts outside of the arts, getting rid of that silo and making it more of a regular occurrence that of course you would have a creative when you need to make a decision, whether you're a council, a corporate, a government body, um, a not-for-profit or an NGO. That's my response to that, Stephen. That's really helpful, thank you. And um, it's actually interesting because the, the paper that we've co-written, it came about because of a comment that Anne said that on her tombstone, she wanted it to be known that she advocated for creatives to be joining boards and being in, involved. So exactly what we're talking about. Um, Hannah, I'd love to hear your perspective. And in particular, just thinking, you know, it, all of us wear multiple hats, but you in particular, when I look at your bio, you know, you're a musician, you're also a co-director, you're, you're running uh, the facility coordinator here at Te Oro. Um, how do you go about um, thinking about these things? Like, and when you first meet people, how do you introduce yourself? How do you bridge this gap? Interesting, that is a good question. Um, if, I, if I was to be completely honest, I, I usually try and start reverse I hate using my role first because I feel like, I guess, you, people get a certain perception of you from the outset when you, you know, introduce yourself as, oh, I'm the facility coordinator, but I'm so much more than that. Like, and, and I, um, I think what is true to my heart is the fact that I'm an artist first and foremost. Um, but in saying that, um, it's taken a long time for me to actually accept that. Um, and I think, like, growing up, 
and because you know my my parents i'm first generation here in new zealand um my parents worked so hard um my mum's from india and my dad's from the cook islands and they worked very hard for me to get the opportunities and to be in the position that i am today um so i think that growing up kind of accepting that i was an artist was quite hard and kind of like oh no like you know that's not that's not practical and um there was almost kind of like a guilt um that um i kind of really enjoyed the arts but really i should have been thinking on my studies i should have been you know i really need to focus on this to be able to provide for my family and give back to my parents um but the weirdest thing is that well i'm 26 now <laughs> it's only been in the past two years that I've actually kind of been like yeah I'm an artist like and I'm proud to be an artist um and especially in times like this um to be honest like when I was in lockdown I think and it said um things about how like a lot of artists this was our time to create amazing yeah, you know we've got all this free time from um from our daily lives um, that we usually wouldn't have um I probably created less <laughs> the least I've created um, and I think that was more so just because I was in a space of um, kind of deep thinking um, and a lot of re-evaluating of if we were to stem all the way back to your point um, the hats that I've been wearing and the time that I have been um, concentrating to each hat um, so long story short <laughs> long story short um, uh, how would I put it? I, I, I think that I've always known though that I, I, love, I love the art that I create, but I have never wanted to tarnish it or influence it in a way where I'm like, okay, like I have to create my art a certain way to survive or to, to pay my bills. I've always wanted to keep my art separate from what I do. But also, um, it's been very important to me to still work within the arts and still be able to contribute um, in a different way to foster the arts, and hence the reason why I'm at Te Oro. Um, and I think that we're quite lucky in the sense that we, we are a young facility, but we were also um, built off a 40-year dream from our community. Um, and just as context, we, had, uh, we have a charter um, and basically we've got like 10, 10 kind of goals or 10 almost um, kind of points of reference in which all of our programming, everything, everything that we, or all the partners that we engage with, um, everything that we do at the facility has to align with these, these goals or these, um, these marking points. Um, and, and that's kind of like aligned with the decisions that the local board makes as well. So, um, for many other facilities that have been a bit more, I guess, flexible. Um, we're lucky in the sense that we still have our charter, so it's not kind of like they're like, all right, well, you know, we're in the hole now and <laughs> you guys are just going to turn into a venue for hire. We still have this charter to somewhat protect what we do at Te Oro. Um, but, yeah, I hope that kind of answered your question. I'm so bad at tangents. <laughs> no, it's good. And it's helpful just to hear the practical experience as somebody who's you know, has that tension. And I'd like to pick up on that. And I open this question or this next road that we're about to go down to any of the panelists. I'm just looking at the chat. And, um, and actually, to be honest, this makes me reflect on myself, like, why am I here? Why am I in this Zoom call? 
I'm not an artist, am I? Oh, wait a minute. So this quote is really quite interesting because I, my actual job is as a lawyer, but I do a podcast as well, which I view as a form of art. And then people don't know this, but for every podcast interview, I try to write a poem for that guest to thank them. So Anne hasn't received her poem yet, but um, that's kind of part of my kaupapa, you know, the, the purpose. And this um, comment here from Helene, I, I love it. It says, unless people experience the magic and role arts can play, they really can't understand what we are on about. Um, there's a perception that it's still, that it's something for people with talent and not part of just normal and social personal expression. People think they must be trained and pay lots of money for that too to be creative and have it play a role. So the, the point here is how can we, again, bridge gaps between an understanding of even who is an artist? What does it mean to be creative? Any thoughts of that from any of you on the panel? I'm so mouthy. It's my problem. Um, I think um, <clears throat> I think those two things are quite different. Like I'm quite creative, I'm very creative, um, but I work with artists. Um, uh, I think you can be extremely creative and explore that in lots of different ways. Not a lot of really creative scientists actually. Um, and I think it's a way of thinking and it's a way of exploring the world. It's why Google now, um, is looking to not hire people with set degrees. They hire people with arts degrees and humanities degrees. Um, it's, a, it's a really di different way of looking at the world. I love the fact about art, for me, that's very much about a shared experience because I come from a performance background. There, for me, there's nothing like being in a same space with people and breathing the same air and smelling the same smells and having the in moment experience. It is completely unique. Um, it's really interesting when you look at gaming, there are some types of gaming that are now exploring this. It's obviously on a digital scale, but it, you have to be in a certain place at a certain time to experience a certain thing. For example, they've had Travis Scott and Marshmallow appearing in the Fortnite game. Um, I think there's not enough conversations around this idea of creative and artists and the interplay that happens in a small country like ours. Ironically, in the UK, they have much more of a, as we were been talking earlier about the cross-sector, you know, um, conversation. People are influenced by art a lot more than they consciously do here. I was talking to Benny the other day, who's an old family friend and, she was talking about maybe buying some art. She's, you know, obviously done extremely well. And I said, well, you should buy art that is of your contemporaries, people who are your age, because it's a conversation, right? You're both making art at the same time. And she went, oh, I hadn't thought of it like that. And that's what it is. You know, you should always think about what's happening around you at the same time. What films are happening? What pop, you know, what popular music? What classical music? They should all, we should be able to, riff off all types of art and all types of popular culture because that's what makes a living breathing situation an ecosystem because that's what we should be in an ecosystem not the arts creative industries it's an ecosystem that thrives and requires each other to have an open dialogue 
You know, I like that thought and, and the ecosystem image is good rather than uppercase arts like over there. It's more integrated, isn't it? Um, Anne or Hannah or Peter, do you have any thoughts or things you'd like to say? I was in a um, school this morning, um, wonderful school, Sylvia Park Primary School in Wellington. And I met five-year-old artists, five-year-olds who understand the importance of making a mark on the world, who understand that through their senses, they can come to understand it and speak about it. Um, one of the difficulties, I think, is that as much Western thinking is done is to silo out parts of our life. When we're little, the arts are absolutely central to who we are, how we see things and how we express what we are. Schools kill that, kill it stone dead. Um, and that's part of the problem, you know, and until we actually start thinking about how um, five-year-olds who, who play, who take risks, who experiment, who love language, who love to sing, to skip, to dance, to do all those sorts of things, who then become deadened to the world through the kind of education system we have, and that's all part of it. How, how, does, how, do, how do people end up in their 20s having been five-year-olds who laughed, skipped, danced, played and sang, feeling as if they should be embarrassed that they're an artist? You know, there are things which happen in our education system which are pernicious to the arts. Um, and so, you know, part of the lack of strategy, of course, that we, you know, that for me I keep going back to is that the arts aren't valued in schools. They get hammered um, and replaced with other kinds of priorities. So um, seeing the five-year-old artists this morning uh, was good for my soul. Um, and what needs to be really good for um, our soul as a nation is that they keep seeing themselves as artists, not artists in waiting, but artists. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I've got young children, so I, I completely agree. That there's, there's just innate, um, you know, it just bubbles out, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, I, I hear you. Um, Anne or Hannah, did you have any thoughts on that? I wondered if I could jump in actually with a question for Peter or anyone else who knows an answer. Um, there are some countries who've got this right. I know that in South Korea, um, when as a response to the terrible problems that they had with Japan and when the country needed to invent itself, that the country decided that it was going to embrace the arts as the way to bring the well-being and a social identity together. And so it threw a lot of money into the arts um, in education, tertiary and secondary. It brought their nationals that were scattered across the globe doing exciting world-class events back home to teach. And so they've built this incredible uh, ingrained sense of culture in their in the last, say, 30 or 40 years. Peter, I know, is in, aware of how Ireland has embraced this. So what I wonder is if we can think about what can, what can we do here in New Zealand now when there's appetite for conversations like this that we haven't enjoyed before? When, how can we seize this and draw on other examples so that we are talking to more than just ourselves, as enjoyable as it is? 
Can Peter talk about Ireland, maybe? I could, I could always talk about Ireland with a name like O'Connor, but um, they certainly, um, ev everything that they do through the Irish government is framed through Creative Ireland. So that's everything from schooling to prisons, to policy, to, to, to public sculpture. But there's a place even closer to home for us, you know, um, Christchurch, you know, smacked over in so many different ways. They, they have really embraced an understanding to speak to the artists and the role of the arts in Christchurch. You know, it's extraordinary. We learned a great deal, or we think we learned a great deal from, 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 from Christchurch. But one of the things that we could really embrace is the way in which the arts became central, not to the physical rebuild of the city, but the, to the spiritual cultural soul aspects of the city you know I, I get really tired of businessmen talking about business all the time and that's what we have to focus on now with with what's going on with with COVID there's some other healing and it's not just healing business it's about how we heal ourselves as people as a country there's all sorts of things that we need to do and you don't you know you can you, you can look beyond um, to places like Ireland which has a particularly different kind of view of the arts. But we can also just look to Christchurch. There's much for us to learn from the Christchurch experience. Well, I'm coming to you from Christchurch, so I completely agree with you. <laughs> and um, there's actually some amazing initiatives which have come out. Um, for example, the Exchange Cafe and Art Gallery um, just down the road from me, um, which is, they've got spaces for artists. It's, it's really wonderful. And, and some of the things which have come out of the rubble greening the rubble and different things. Um, Hannah, did you have any thoughts on this? I'm, I'm curious for your perspective. No, that's fine. Can I, can I just um, say I, um, I completely agree with um, Peter. I think it's been, I, I studied Northern Ireland a lot when I was doing my screen development and they have a really interesting way of approaching um, screen over there it's very open um, and they do a lot in the training and development space um, and I think that's something we can think about is describing better the pathway that you can have as an artist or a career in the arts creative industries we um, forget that for a lot of people there is no cultural capital they don't know what that looks like or feels like it's quite frightening um, and I think we need to, in the arts, we have a responsibility to describe what it could look like so that people can feel they can follow a pathway when they go into it. Um, and things like cadetships, internships, which I know CNZ does a little with production, with um, dance companies and, and other things, could play a more important role. We're certainly looking at it within the screen industry and as part of the new Rove um, with the road moves, the review of vocational education within the creative industries is going to become quite a big thing. So, um, yeah, that that was just something I thought about. No, that's really good. I was talking about. That's perfect because it bridges into the sort of the final area that I wanted to talk about. But just before we do that, um, the screen and the the importance of it, I think um, you know when you look at the Lord of the Rings and the feature films and and what goes out from New Zealand. It's incredible in terms of the benefit, the cross benefit 
of these things being shot here because all of a sudden there's the beauty of New Zealand right there. And you think about the millions of tourists, you know, people talk about the tourism industry, but I can guarantee you if you talked with those tourists, many of them would have been inspired by some of the, the art which has come out of, of the country. So I'm really curious though, some of this, one of the, you know, we've kind of kept it at a high level. We've said we need to bridge gaps. We need silos. We need education. My, my, the, I think we need to ask what next? What does this mean practically? Is there any practical steps we can take? Um, do any of you have any thoughts on this? Because I'm keen that we don't just leave it at the um, conceptual and that, you know, we need to collaborate more. What, what comes next? I think Hannah should answer because she's, she's young and they have a much more adaptable view of the world, I think. They do it a lot easier. You're probably writing across lots of different content platforms just like breathing and you don't probably even appreciate um, that for people like us who come from another generation that that's quite scary. And I think the, I think the young people like Hannah and what Hannah's doing is really key and important. They can take a really big part in leading the conversation because it's going to be their world and they should be the ones who say how important it is to be thinking about well-being and about how to express ourselves and how to do that through TikTok, like somebody said on the chat and on YouTube and not just through in a theatre or in an art gallery. I think Hannah, the Hannahs of this world probably have the strongest voice right now and we should all be going and joining her and she can lead a hooey for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, okay. And now to go to provide the silver bullet, no. <laughs> um, silver bullet of um, knowledge. Um, from my moving forward. All right. I think that for me, the biggest thing, oh well, that I've observed in our generation is, I think that a lot of us um, have the ability or not afraid to kind of do things that are out of the norm and what I mean by that is that like I obviously you know my parents generation and my grandparents generation like there was this kind of there were step paths they were kind of like you know you were going to go to study this to end up in this career and now we've got, kind of got this massive kind of field of options um, that we can go into um, and I, I think that what's most important, um, well, for me as an artist anyway, is that we don't forget our ability to connect with everyone. Oh, I've got a hand up. Can you, can you hear me? I'm sorry, someone was waving and I was like, oh, did I need to stop talking? <laughs> that was Felicity just waving goodbye. Oh, okay, bye Felicity. <laughs> Okay, what was my train of thought? Okay, moving forward. Um, okay, I need to backtrack now. Um, oh, let me just turn off. One second. Sorry, I just got put off. Um, um, youth future. Um, yeah, all I can all I can come back down to is that I think that in times like this, um, it's been very interesting to observe and see how yeah everybody has 
the ability to feel something collectively. Um, and I think that is the way in which we need to move forward. Like I, I, I think that sometimes it's kind of like, oh well. Growing up, there was kind of a mentality that you you had your own kind of little bubble and you experienced that on your own and like you dealt with it in whatever worldview that you were conditioned to grow up in or anything like that. But I think that we're in a time where it's it's okay to expand that. It's okay to um, you know, support others. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I'm I'm waffling, but <laughs> yeah, I have no I have no like golden golden bit of knowledge. But that's okay. Yeah. We, we didn't expect you to solve all the problems of the world. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we are we are drawing to a close. But Peter and did you have any um, final thoughts that you wanted to share? Well, you know, the World Health Organization released um, a report on the arts and well-being last year. <clears throat> that report is a synthesis of over 3,000 pieces of research which looks at the, the links and the relationship between arts and well-being. You know, we pride ourselves in New Zealand that we beat COVID with the science. Well, there's a science about the arts too. And the science of the arts is, is that they're cheaper than Valium, they're cheaper than investing in mental health services. They're cheaper than a whole range, you know, the cost-effective ways to ensure individual, community, national well-being. And that, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, government has, senior science advisor, has 30 science advisors who are advising government and corrections and, and all those policy areas on the science. Um, we need artists advising government on a regular basis about what we know the arts can and could do. If there was one thing that I, that I would really want to achieve other than the arts and schools, would be for government to listen to the science about the arts. Have a look at that report. Build some policy around that. That might make um, quite a difference, really. Maybe what we should be doing as artists is talking to our science friends and saying, can you advocate for us in government because you're there ahead of us? Good, thank you. Appreciate those comments. How about from you, Anne? Well, I, thank you, Peter. I think that's a real important aspect. But let's not forget that we're not weaklings. You know, we do tend to practice our art in a corner, but collectively we're big and we, we do have a voice. Our challenge is that we're seriously fractured. Um, you know, we're self-absorbed and we're precious and we're beautiful. And so we don't necessarily play together nicely as well as we should. And we don't use the weight of our heft together collectively well at all. Um, so if we were able to do that, we would have the ear of government, particularly in an election cycle. Um, you know, one only has to look at one of our major parties um, list and seeing that the, the um, arts portfolio is number 27 or something. So it's not particularly well valued. It's not good enough. Um, but we need to have our current minister for the arts perhaps a little less distracted on saving a nation and focusing on the arts as well. So we do have some work to do, but if we want to be able to show the government, the science, then it really is, we have to be noisy about it. Mm. Great, thank you so much, Anne. That's really good. 
I agree. And, and it's interesting, the themes that have come through today, I think, even in hearing about your own journeys and where you've come from and the type of art that you're practicing through to the, this idea of how do we communicate? How do we collaborate? How do we get our message out? Um, I think it's been really helpful. Um, I think what we'll do is finish up shortly. Um, what we can do with the chat comments is we can actually circulate those as well. So if you have any last links or thoughts that you wanna share, um, go ahead and drop them in there because we, um, what we'll do is circulate to the people who signed up to this, the link to the video, because it might be that you know somebody who would appreciate watching it at their own time, at their own place. Um, and uh, there'll be some, so some links in an email that will follow. I'll, I'll just put the chat into that as well so people can reflect on the comments that were shared. Um, but I really want to say a big thanks to Felicity and Peter and Hannah and and um, it's been a very whirlwind thing to pull this together and um, but really appreciate the quality of the conversation that we've been able to have and let's just hope that it continues beyond this conversation um, and i hope that through this we can start having um, a bigger conversation with other people the people who aren't on this call um, and hopefully this has been the challenge that that's come through today so just want to say thank you so much, everybody, for joining. There will be an email that follows up, and I wish you all a wonderful weekend. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that panel discussion. If you did, you might want to check out some of the other content at theseeds.nz. Until next time.